Welcome to Breaking Through, the podcast that explores the breakthroughs teams are making every day at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm Madeline Bell, the hospital's president and CEO. Today's episode is part of my new Breaking Through mini-series, Women Leading the Way. In this mini-series, you'll meet some of CHOP's amazing women scientists and hear about the remarkable breakthroughs they're making. You'll also learn about an exciting group of programs at CHOP that we call Frontier Programs. We started the Frontier Programs initiative in 2015 to fast-track our scientists' most innovative ideas. Many of our Frontier Programs have made important breakthroughs, and my guests will share the stories behind some of these breakthroughs with you. My guest today is Dr. Marnie Falk. Dr. Falk is a geneticist who specializes in caring for children with mitochondrial disease. She is also the executive director of our Mitochondrial Medicine Frontier Program. Dr. Falk, welcome to Breaking Through. Thank you. So let's start with you describing what is mitochondrial disease and how does it impact children? Absolutely. Well, let's start with discussing what are mitochondria. Mitochondria is one of those complex words that loses people right at the beginning, but it's really much easier when you think of them as our cellular batteries. Mitochondria live within the cell. They're what we call a subcellular organelle. So inside of every cell in our body, we have mitochondria. Every single cell. Mitochondria are the place where we make all the energy we need to power our cells. So more than 90% of the energy we need to power our heart, our lung, our brain, our vision, everything comes from our mitochondria. And as a matter of fact, when you stop living, you don't disappear. You just stop generating energy for your body. So really, mitochondria make the vital force that keep you alive. So what's mitochondrial disease? (laughs) Mitochondrial disease is when the energy fails. It could be a brownout. It could be a blackout. It could be any organ because all of our organs have mitochondria. But when they fail to work, that's a mitochondrial disease. It's very hard to look at somebody and know that their mitochondria aren't working. I give the analogy to my patients of a doll. If somebody brought you a toy doll and the doll's arm wasn't connected, you would know there was a trauma. There was something obviously wrong. But if somebody brought you that doll, let's say a child, and the doll wasn't walking and it wasn't talking and it wasn't blinking and the lights weren't going on, most parents would try to change the batteries. Well, that's what we think of as mitochondrial disease. The batteries aren't working properly. Can you tell us how common is mitochondrial disease? It's actually much more common than we think. Collectively, it's about one in every 4,300 individuals has a mitochondrial problem. That's across all ages. That's for when it's a primary problem, meaning the cause of the energy failure in the cell comes from the genes. But there's many other types of mitochondrial dysfunction. So things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, even aging. When we age, our mitochondrial DNA integrity becomes impaired. We get deletions in it and we get less mitochondria. And you know this because if you're at a party with grandkids and little kids, who's the ones running around? (laughs) It's the little kids because their energy is just so much higher because our ability to make energy goes down unless we exercise. That really helps us. (laughs) So we're still learning all the different areas where mitochondrial dysfunction is happening. We're now recognizing it's probably much more than even one in 4,300. It's probably many more of us (laughs) than we'd like to admit. So you talked about how exercise impacts mitochondria. And I'm wondering, is there a corollary to diet? Absolutely. We think about nutrition a lot, and we think there's a lot to be learned. The purpose of eating, of nutrition, is to actually get 
the food the mitochondria needs to burn, kind of like in a fire pit. When we know somebody has a mitochondrial disease, we know that they can't make energy properly with a normal cellular nutrition. We know that if somebody's mitochondria don't work well, one of the things that sets them up to really be in bad shape and have a regression is fasting. So we know that the body needs to keep a steady supply of energy. And we talk about a rainbow diet, you know, having lots of fruits and vegetables in your diet. And all those vitamins are often cofactors for the mitochondria to make energy. So in our mito clinic, we actually became the first clinic in the country to have a nutritionist, a dietitian, see every mitochondrial disease patient and optimize nutrition for them. One of the things that we're really eager to do is learn more about how do you feed somebody who's not making energy properly so their cell can function the best that it can. Our colleagues at CHOP are thinking about this, and I think this is going to be a big area in the next five or ten years. So what made you decide to specialize in mitochondrial disease? It always starts with the patient. I graduated medical school in the year 2000. There was very little known about mitochondria and mitochondrial disease. It had only been discovered that a genetic problem, a mutation, can cause a mitochondrial disease in 1988. So it was still a very new field. There were very few tests. Most of the tests had been figured out in the 1950s as biochemical problems, if you look at somebody's muscle. And it would be a description that the energy production, the battery, was failing. But nobody knew why. And Around the early 2000s, I was taken in Ohio to an outside sub-hospital of the main campus, and there was a little girl who was three years old living on a ventilator. And she was alert and looking around, and her mother wanted to know why she was on the ventilator. So I was there as a geneticist with my attending physician, and he sat down and looked at her and drew a picture and said, this biochemical pathway, this battery has failed. And she said, why? And he said, we don't know. And it really bothered me that somebody could be looking at you and have had a stroke that prevents them from breathing on their own or from eating on their own, and nobody knows why. So genetics was just in its infancy. The human genome was sequenced in 2003. And it started to occur to me, I was in a major center where they did a lot of energetic studies on tissues and on people's samples, that there had to be a genetic cause. And to me, that became a life calling. What is causing all of these people's energy to stop being made? And that was the big question, and that's what I've been working on ever since. So let's back up to earlier in your career. What made you pursue a career in science? I've always loved to ask why. <laughs> I'm the kid who wanted to know why does it happen, and I fell in love with science in high school. I loved biology. I loved chemistry. I loved botany. I volunteered in a hospital. I didn't know any doctors. No one in my family was a doctor, but a guidance counselor sat down with my father and me when it was time to think about colleges and said, have you thought about these combined science medical school degree programs? And they were brand new. They hadn't existed. So I applied to the George Washington University, and I fell in love with it. And so it was a combined seven-year program where you did college and medical school. But for me, it was really just an unbelievable opportunity to really discover and to learn and to really understand how our body works. It's one of those things that we didn't have Siri when I was a kid, right? You had to go to the library and look it up, and there was just so much I wanted to know about how our bodies worked. And I think that's what drove me was the curiosity and, and the desire to discover. So it all worked out, <laughs> but I don't think I quite knew in the beginning, you know, what the whole path was going to look like. I think it was because I like science. So tell me about your role models or mentors. Who supported you along the way? There's been many. My parents were certainly 
role models for me and mentors. My father put three kids through college and graduate school, worked every day, you know, never asked for anything in return, and always just supported us no matter what. So I think it was my family, first and foremost. In college and medical school, I was exposed to amazing people in Washington, D.C., and there was a time I wanted to drop out of medical school. I thought it was maybe not the right direction, maybe not enough discovery, maybe too much rote memorization at the time. And mentors talked to me and said, stick with it. This is just the first year. (laughs) There's a lot more to learn. There's a lot more to discover. So all the way through, I think there's been people that are watching out for you and helping you stay on the right path. When I got into residency, so uh, genetics and medicine, I found a wonderful scientific married couple who became my mentors. And we started to think out of the box, you know, can we actually model what a mitochondrial failure might be in an animal? How do we think big? What's a big question? And they were incredibly influential. And then I think as I started my faculty career, the mentors became the physicians and scientists and doctors at the hospital to help me think about How do you focus? How do you really select where you can have the most impact? How do you balance? How do you partner? How do you find advocates? So I think I've never had a shortage of mentors. (laughs) I think it's about finding them at the right time. So as a woman scientist, what bit of wisdom would you pass on to a woman who may be pursuing a career in science and medicine? I think for anybody pursuing a professional career, it's important to understand why you're doing it and to make sure you know why you're doing it, why if you're leaving your family each day, why you're doing it. If you know something's going to be a long road, what's your vision? So for me, it's thinking about the bigger picture. But at the same point, I think the best advice I can have, besides knowing yourself and knowing why you want to do something, is to ask for help. To think that you can do it all alone, nobody can do it all alone. So I think you probably need to ask for more help than you realize. You need to ask for help at home and at work. And I think learning to delegate is a big part of this, right? Learning that it's okay to ask other people for help. It's okay to not do it all yourself, to have discussions with your partner about who cooks (laughs) and who does things in in the home. And I also think work-life balance is also incredibly important. I always tell my kids, if you're going to work hard, you have to play hard, right? You've got to take time off. You've got to recover. You've got to find out what you like to do. And since mitochondria help us make our energy, the only way we know to make more mitochondria is to exercise. So I am a big fan of exercise. I'm a big fan of running, of swimming, of anything that you can do to really make more so that you can be as healthy as you can be. And with that comes good nutrition and good sleep. (laughs) So all the things your grandmother told you were right. She just maybe didn't know mitochondria were the root cause. Oh, I think that's great advice for all the people who are listening to this podcast. So you talked a little bit about what led you to your research and the types of questions that you wanted to ask. And you talked about a patient that you met early in your career. But can you tell us a patient story, maybe something more recent, that really touched you, that made you really think about the work that you're doing? So one of the patients that of recent memory that was really inspiring to us was a family who had lost a child to a a mitochondrial disease from a mutation in the mitochondrial DNA. And they were terrified about trying again that their next child would also die in infancy from this condition called Lee syndrome. And what we were able to do is to partner with reproductive endocrinology at the University of Pennsylvania, or UPenn, to be able to find a way to do in vitro fertilization here in America without the family having to travel overseas to be able to test for the specific mitochondrial DNA mutation and then allow the family to select an embryo that did not have the mutation. And that family just went on to have a very healthy baby being born 
from this joint effort that before was not possible anywhere in America. That in itself is just the greatest story. So when you think about the future, and so much of what you're talking about seems so futuristic, what really excites you most as you look out into the horizon? It's precision medicine. It's getting from discovery to intervention much quicker. And I think CHOP is one of the leaders in this area. And I think it's incredibly important because I learned a long time ago, people don't want to be interesting. People don't even necessarily want to be diagnosed. People want to be treated. They want to be healthy. They want to go back to living their lives. So I think the charge and what inspires me is how do you shorten that gap from knowledge and understanding, we know that this is a treatable disease, to how do you bridge that gap of decades to help the people that come into your clinic today, that come into your hospital. So to me, that's the inspiring part. It's the fact that we can think bigger and that we can apply technologies quicker than it's ever been possible before. So we're seeing just a huge uptick in possibilities and recognizing that each therapy might be different, even for people with the same disease because they're different people, right? In other settings, there's therapies that work across diseases. You know, there's some therapies for cancer that we're repurposing for mitochondrial disease. So to me, it's about how do you bridge that gap of using technology, right, and using knowledge and omics and testing to really make a difference, to actually have the expectation on ourselves that we're going to bring therapies to people today, like in their lives, and we're going to keep trying. Until they're cured, we have to keep trying. How has philanthropy made a difference in the work you do? Philanthropy has made an enormous difference in what we do. It's been incredibly enabling. When I started, I thought a scientist has to go into the laboratory and solve everything and then come back and put it on a platter and deliver it to the patient, and that it's very one-sided. And what patients have taught me in these 15 years I've been at CHOP is that that's not true at all, that it's a partnership. And I learned this back in 2013. There is a family, it always starts with a family, there is a family whose gene I had discovered why their daughter was so sick. From the day she was born, she couldn't hold up her head. She built up a lot of lactic acid in her blood, very delayed in her development, never learned to talk, never learned to walk. Why was she so sick? And we couldn't find it. And we kept testing every gene as one gene after another came out. And as bigger types of tests came out where you could test many genes at once, bigger genomic tests, we were able to solve it. And then we had to prove it, that that was it. And we did. And we were able to publish it and be certain. And now it's one of the most common diseases that causes mito disease. But at the time, we didn't know. And the family came in a year or two later, and they wrote me a check for $1,000. And they said, we'd like you to have this. And I said, for what? And they said, to do research. I said, you don't have to support my research. And they said, no, no, we want you to go further. We want you to treat this. And so they've now raised over $250,000, and they're not independently wealthy. They have auctions and art shows and painting nights. (laughs) And they've inspired us, and we've been able to hire scientists and create models. And then those models become available that we understand them for rare diseases. And then drug companies come and say, can you test our drug in that model? Do you think this drug will help people? Or can we study the clinical research information and design the best trial for these patients? So it all starts with philanthropy. And I've learned this lesson many times over now, that it's partnering with the families of the patients. We see adults and children. It's partnering with all of them and understanding what they need and what they want. And that's been another big lesson. They told us it's impossibly hard to know who has mitochondrial disease. You can't look at somebody and see it. We need better tests. And so one of the programs that we've been working on that has partly started in philanthropy is developing better diagnostics. How can you actually look at somebody and know when they're tired or if they're 
organs aren't working, that it's their energy failure. How do you know that? So that's come from partnering with families. Another example is we see so many patients here with mitochondrial disease. We should be educating the future generations of clinicians and trainees about this. And one of the families that's on our family advisory council said, okay. And he funded the first in the country mitochondrial medicine clinical fellowship. And we completely filled all three of our spots within the first year. It's a one-year program. And we've been able to train a neurologist, a geneticist, a family practice doctor from the VA, the veterans system. They have no mitochondrial doctors in that system, and now they do. And we have more coming. So philanthropy has enabled us to train. It's enabled us to make models. It's enabled us to develop therapies. And now we have a new program where it's allowing us to look at how cancer and mitochondria are diametrically opposed. You can't stop cancer from growing, and we can't make mitochondrial disease without energy grow. So how do we steal strategies from one to treat the other? So that's a really fun program. Completely came from philanthropy. Wow. So exciting and inspirational, too. So I always close by asking my guests about their personal breakthrough. So Dr. Falk, can you tell me about your biggest breakthrough moment in your career? Scientifically? (laughs) Could be anything. (laughs) Scientifically, I think we had a big breakthrough when we realized that mitochondrial energy failure does not just affect the mitochondrium. It affects the whole cell, and it causes the whole cell to be very stressed out. And when we realized that, it was a big aha moment, because now we realize that all the things that are changing in a cell, all of the adaptations we were seeing about genes and proteins turning on, they were trying to fix the problem, but there was so much going on, it was part of the problem. And when we could quiet all the stress in the cell, we can make the cell and then the animals and the organisms actually function better. Even when the mitochondria still wasn't working right, just by quieting the rest of the stress, we could make everything a little bit more stable, a little bit more healthy. And that opened up a whole range of therapies and a whole new way of thinking about how we're going to treat these diseases. And what's really exciting is that some of these are going on to clinical trial now. That's a breakthrough. That's what we want to be doing. That's all the time we have for today. Dr. Falk, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. To find out how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. To learn more about how our teams are transforming the future of healthcare, please visit innovation.chop.edu. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening.